podcast Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host. I want you to think about TV shows that operate on two parallel narrative registers. Now, usually these run for a number of seasons. Actually, the one I have in mind is the X-Files because that's when I first became aware of this um, technique. Uh, so <laughs> there was the Monster of the Week episodes, which were relatively discreet. Um, story was wrapped up uh, by the end of the episode at most two episodes. And it focused on something usually local, but behind it was operating this larger narrative. Um, I think it was about the U.S. government colluding with aliens to do something, whatever. And you only got a dribble of it um, in each individual episode, though some episodes focused mostly on that. And that's how that one advanced in the background over the course of many series. It's a very common way for shows to be organized. I'm just re-watching the show Lucifer now, which does that as well. So this is a little bit what goes on in many Balkan historiographies. And we're going to be focusing here specifically on what they have said about Byzantium. And the countries that we're talking about are those whose medieval history in one way or another has to pass through the Eastern Roman Empire in order to get to the you know, full emergence of the modern nation. So we're talking about Turkey and Greece and Bulgaria um, and Serbia and Romania and other countries, but mostly those. So there's a great deal of specialized research that happens um, in these, that comes out of these countries, historical research, and it focuses on particular issues. And to, to that degree, it is pretty much equivalent to that from any other country. Um, especially if it has passed through an international peer review system. Though occasionally in those studies, you will see a glimmer in the background, perhaps, of the national mythos of that country. And I'm referring specifically to the narratives that the modern nations have constructed about their origins and about how they got from those origins to the present. Those origins are in very many cases recorded in medieval Greek sources, and so they are, they are inevitably entangled in Byzantine scholarship. And these narratives are, uh, they, they're like separate mythologies almost. They present history in such different and incompatible ways that they might as well be talking about different universes. Um, you know, the Turkish historical narrative that was kind of invented and promulgated by Ataturk, the modern Greek ideas about continuity and, you know, the Hellenic race and so forth, and you name it. So each of these countries has a very distinctive background story. The Romanian one is particularly interesting. And sometimes even in the specialized studies, you will find sort of allusions to these, or they come up in the last paragraphs, or they're kind of a hidden in the background, but implied. And sometimes there are books that just are out-and-out out statements of the national mythos. Um, so these are very often uh, prestigious multi-volume histories of the country in question, published by a esteemed Academy of Sciences, uh, authored by the most prominent historians in the leading universities. Sometimes these people are also politicians. Um, these narratives are uh, taught in schools. Uh, they are the kind of official story that 
local like newspapers and the local politi- political scene they kind of have to generally abide by that narrative or or promulgate it but to local audiences not international ones they're largely meant for local consumption they very rarely make the jump from the local national scene to an international um, scientific audience they rarely ever make it into international textbooks so this naturally creates a sense of unease um, among international scholarly audience even when you're reading the more specialized studies, are you getting something that is designed to promote the national mythos, even if it's not directly stated or kind of overtly included as the, the point of the whole exercise? And here's where the topic that we will be discussing today intersects uh, very well with the previous episode that I posted, 101, on the topic of decolonizing Byzantine studies with uh, Ben and Mirella, um, in the sense that Uh, Many scholars believe that it is nationalism that has colonized Byzantine studies. In other words, that nationalism is part of the problem of of why Byzantium looks so distorted in so many studies um, or overall, and others who believe that Byzantium is actually complicit in forging these um, national narratives. Um, And it certainly has been mustered to do that, and so... To that degree, it and its sources are the colonizing force here. Let's remember that to a degree, and at certain times, it was an empire. So my guest today to help us sort all of this out is Diana Mishkova, who is a professor of history at the Center for Advanced Study in Sofia, Bulgaria. And she's written a truly extraordinary book called Rival Byzantiums, Empire and Identity in Southeastern Europe. Now, Diana is not per se a Byzantinist, but more a a scholar and historian of uh, modern nation building, um, especially in southeastern Europe, and she's written a number of topics about this. And this is her turn from a modern standpoint to looking at how Byzantium has been marshaled and used um, in producing national narratives uh, in the countries that I mentioned earlier. Um, All of these narratives are, are not consistent with each other, obviously, but they're also often internally um, diverse. So sometimes countries will have very different narratives or um, at different times, different approaches to Byzantium seem more advantageous or suitable. This is an extraordinary book in its clarity and even-handedness. Um, it, um, I, for one, could detect no bias um, for or against any one of these um, traditions. Um, and I find that extraordinary. <laughs> especially since I'm also in the book. (laughs) Anyway, but we won't be talking about that. It is actually a wonderful thing to have a modern historian uh, come and look at some of the narratives that our field has produced um, and give us a reading of them in their own context. Uh, Their own context is not only the medieval sources that they're drawn from or claim to be drawn from, but uh, the modern dynamics um, that propel them and, and, and create them to begin with. Now, I want to say one more thing before I wrap this up. Um, It may seem from the book or from the discussion that we're kind of picking on these national narratives. um, And when you put nationalism and the Balkans together, a certain kind of picture uh, comes to mind. So I just wanted to state very clearly for the record um, that whatever distortions these narratives have perpetrated for their own modern purposes, 
they are nothing compared to the distortion that Western European uh, scholars have perpetrated against the Eastern Roman Empire uh, for a thousand years um, and continued to do so uh, un until probably the mid-20th century. Um, the early 20th century was a peak of Western fantasy and irrationalism about the Eastern Empire with all kinds of racial ideas and Orientalism and decadence and all of these things just piling up onto millenni a millennium of distortion and misrepresentation. Uh, so we're not just picking on the um, uh, you know, Balkan countries and their you know, national obsessions here. And let me say, for example, that, and this is not in the book, this is just myself speaking, um, that Western European um, countries and their institutions continue to perpetrate their own mythos about Byzantium. I won't talk about it in detail here, but there's plenty of identity politics that's still going on everywhere. Anyway, I have said enough. Um, let's get straight to my conversation with Diana. Uh, but first, let me thank Medievalist.net again for reposting all of these episodes on their site. Here's my conversation with Diana Mishkova. Diana, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Anthony, for having me. Thank you very much indeed. So it's good to see you, well, in person, at least insofar as Zoom allows, because um, I've been reading your work for some time, but I thought this was the best opportunity to have you on. Um, now, you're not like a technical Byzantinist, um, which is why I find your perspective on the historiography so interesting. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your own research background um, and, you know, what kinds of sort of training and expertise and research you're coming from and that you're bringing mm -hmm. to the historiography um, on Byzantium? So, and what brought you to this topic? Um, well, Nation building and nationalism in southeastern Europe uh, is an overwhelming field of research, which can be and has been um, approached from very different angles. Uh, my preferred vintage point to this field uh, has been that of uh, intellectual history and the history of historiography or uh, history writing, which are essential components of research in the uh, formation of nations and, uh, and national identity. So uh, how the nation is represented, uh, how its origins, uh, aspirations and claims are authorized and narrated, uh, this is what actually continues to drive my engagement with this uh, research field over the last um, oh, almost couple of decades. Um, so uh, my latest book in this, in this respect is not an exception. It deals uh, not with Byzantium or Byzantine history per se, but with the way national historians of the modern Balkan quote unquote successor states to the empire, that is Greece, Bulgaria, Serbia, Romania, and Turkey, have operated with the topos of Byzantium and how in doing so they have been shaping uh, the national canons of history in these countries. All this means, um, uh, as I see it, exposing the national stakes of uh, Byzantine studies, uh, the way this field uh, partakes in changing the understanding and uh, writing of history, uh, national history uh, in particular. Uh, 
national histories generally treat the uh, Middle Ages as the period of the genesis of uh, modern nations. And since the medieval history of the Balkan societies and states was largely shaped in and by their relations with Byzantium. So the question about the empire's role uh, and impact came to be uh, implicated heavily in issues like collective identity, historical rights, uh, national patrimony, culture, mentality, uh, in brief, in the definition of the collective self. Yeah. And as such, uh, as, as such uh, Byzantium uh, has always functioned as a conglomerate of ideologically harnessed understandings and a point of reference uh, structuring the, uh, the national grand narratives. Um, my interest, therefore, uh, concerns the mirrored reflections, not the historical reality uh, of Byzantium. Uh, these reflections are also historical facts, but they belong less to the history of the Byzantine Empire than, than to, the, um, uh, to that of modern historiography. In some way, uh, the book is an exploration, the book that uh, I, I recently was recently uh, published on um, these national interpretations of, uh, of, the, of uh, Byzantium in the Balkan history, by the Balkan historiographies, uh, it is an exploration, in a sense, of the politics of Byzantine studies, that is, of the images and understandings uh, this field has been, has been cultivating uh, during the last two and a half centuries in the countries of uh, southeastern Europe. But, it, but in another way, it is also a critical interrogation of Byzantium as a historiographical construct with considerable uh, ideological potential in shaping a national history and uh, and national identity. You know, I read your book at exactly the right time because I am currently working on a book on Western perceptions and mm -hmm. the, the creation of Western ideas of Byzantium, uh, though ranging from late antiquity down to World War II. So we overlap in the last few centuries that, you know, of, of that project. Um, and I, <laughs> I should reiterate um, that, you know, for all that critical interrogations of sort of Balkan views of Byzantium, um, you know, make them sound very problematic. Western constructions are just as problematic, if not <laughs> more so in their own ways. And so we're not singling out anybody here, but critical um, research like this should 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 be comprehensive. I, mm -hmm. I also want to say that your work is not just, though it can be seen that way, as a study of like the reception of Byzantium, though it is in part that. Um, it's also a, 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 an inquiry into the, the framework in which a lot of research takes place in these countries. So it's not just like, oh, look at how these Byzantine themes appear mm -hmm. on that play, for example, that was staged, you know, whenever, which is much more of a reception kind of study. Um, but that scholars are actually conducting research within these frameworks. Now, in these countries, so it's important to be clear here, you're not just focusing on countries, but on, or all the research that takes place in them, but 
I, constructions of Byzantium that are following some kind of national narrative. In mm -hmm. all of these countries, there are people who do history independently of those narratives or who are critical of them. So this is not like a blanket right approach to everybody here, um, but to constructions of historiography that are related to national priorities. Um, uh, you know, some of which are very powerful and dominant in some countries and some others less so, you know, depending. Now, this is something that you don't talk about in the book, but I was wondering if you could fill me in. You probably know this, you know, very well. Like, what are the kinds of institutions that promote those that kind of national historiography that where, you know, we're going to present an image of Byzantium that is consistent with our own national history? So what are kind of the institutions that do that in these countries? Um. Uh, well, the brief answer is a broad range and a variety of institutions are crucial, uh, first for the uh, legitimization of the nation state, and which later have been uh, charged with the task of creating and fostering national consciousness and uh, and identity. And these are above all the uh, above all the centralized uh, educational agencies from uh, ministries of education, which are tasked with uh, producing and supervising the educational curriculum and the uh, history school books, uh, to national academies of sciences and universities, uh, which have been crucial in the process of uh, historical canon building and its scholarly uh, authorization. So uh, we are actually talking of a close relationship between state institutions, scholarship, and the prospects for academic career, state support for, or even better, direct political involvement of individual historians were decisive for their elevation to the rank of national historians, mm. uh, and thus creators of the dominant versions of national historiographies. It is uh, also telling that the professionalization of history writing and the introduction of the scientific, that is positivist method in the second half of the 19th century, did not entail a radical shift in the dominant historiographical discourse. Many historians saw, and, and some still see, no discrepancy between uh, history as an academic endeavor and history as a service to the nation. Mm. In fact, many, many historians in Southeastern Europe combined the roles of scholars and politicians as members of parliament, as ministers, even prime ministers. Yeah. And here the names of uh, uh, Nikolai Yorga in, in Greece, Spiridon Lambros in, uh, sorry, Nikolai Yorga in Romania, Spiridon Lambros uh, in Greece, Bogdan Filov uh, uh, in Bulgaria, or Mehmet Fuat Kuprulu uh, in Turkey uh, easily, come, uh, easily come to mind. Yeah. Turkish historiography is a good example uh, in this sense, as it clearly illustrates the paramountcy of the nation-state framework in the production of knowledge. The late Ottoman imperial historiography and art history were pluralistic. Uh, they were open to admitting connections to Byzantium on different levels. But the establishment of the Turkish Republic in 1922 put an end to this plurality of opinion. The Turkish uh, Historical Society, which was uh, set up uh, uh, in 1930 under the patronage of uh, Kemal Atatürk, the founder and uh, 
uh, first president of the Turkish of the of the of Republican Turkey effectively institutionalized the Kemalist version of history, the so-called uh, Turkish history thesis, which worked to forge a new, entirely Turku-centric uh, historical consciousness among the Turks, uh, as opposed to their uh, previous uh, imperial and mostly uh, religiously framed uh, uh, identity, and which virtually monopolized historical scholarship. One of the enduring uh, effects of all this was uh, rejecting the existence of any formative Byzantine influence on the Ottoman institutions, on Ottoman art and architecture, so that the country that inherited most of the Byzantine material culture saw the setting up of the first uh, privately funded center for Byzantine studies only in 2015, eight years ago. Yes, wow. <laughs> so so most of my audience is resides in predominantly English speaking countries. Mm. <clears throat> and you know they, but they have backgrounds from all over the world and especially from southeastern Europe. And but let's just assume that they don't know the competing national myths of the countries in question. Mm. And perhaps cannot understand why you can say a single sentence about a fort or the ethnicity of one person in the 12th century and start a war between, I don't know, <laughs> Bulgarians and Romanians, but it is possible to do that. I've gotten caught in the crossfire. Oh, I, I don't know. I, I used a word which one side thought was wrong. and whatever. Anyway, mm. could you give us some examples of, you know, what, national narratives about Byzantium might look like or particular claims that they might make in these different countries just to mm -hmm. give a, a sense of what, what kinds of narratives we're talking about and also their variety and how they conflict. We don't have to get into that too much detail, but many of our audience members won't know exactly what we're talking about until we give them some concrete particulars. Well, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, I could try to to single out uh, some of the most uh, formative uh, national myths in this uh, in these cultures and uh, historiographies. By the way, uh, uh, just just a note to um, to this kind of historiographical uh, conflicts. Now I'm working on a volume. Uh, it's going to be going to be a collective volume that precisely discusses the historiographical wars in the Balkan in the Balkans. And the first volume will be devoted to medieval topics. That is right. how these historiographic wars unfolded on the ground of the medieval of medieval right. history. But okay, uh, so if I if I go back to your question, um, I would say that for the Greeks, uh, this must be uh, the myth of an eternal Greece. Yeah. That is of the uninterrupted continuity of the Greek nation from ancient to modern Greece. Where Byzantium serves as the as the middle bond, right. uh, therefore as a as a Greek state, Greek in the in the racial uh, sense of the word, even when it is rhetorically camouflaged as Greek in culture uh, yes. only. Agreed. So uh, Bulgarians, Serbs, Romanians, and Turks, even when uh, portraying Byzantium as their prime adversary all contested the Greeks' claim that it belonged to them alone. That was, that was 
uh, uniform uh, uh, tendency. Uh, a corresponding enduring Romanianness uh, is the uninterrupted continuity of the Romanians as a Latin race from the time of the Roman conquests north, north of the Danube River to the present day. In other words, as representing the West in the East. And this right. is a long-standing myth uh, 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 in, in Romanian historiography and historical culture generally. Um, on such grounds, many, many Romanian historians considered the uh, medieval uh, Romanian principalities to be the only rightful inheritor to the, Ottoman, uh, to the Roman glory yeah. uh, and the true Byzantium after Byzantium, which means Byzantine imperial and civilizational continuity via the Romanians, while con contesting the role of custodians of the uh, uh, Byzantine uh, legacy to the Bulgarians and the Serbs. Uh, the uh, persistent myth in Bulgarian historiography, uh, it's, it's, more, it's more tricky here, but I would say it is the putative role of Byzantium as the eternal nemesis, the evil demiurge, so to say, of Bulgarian mm -hmm. history, which had hindered the organic development of the Bulgarian nation and state. And organic development here implies, among other things, uh, the unification of the so-called Slavs from the Bulgarian group, a mythical community with no trade in the sources, uh, in a single in a single Bulgarian state. Um, as far as Serbia is concerned, um, a steadily cultivated myth there is the presentation of the medieval kingdom of Stefan Dusan, the 14th century ruler, during whose reign medieval Serbia reached the peak of its political power and territorial expansion as the potential fresh and vibrant successor of uh, the Eastern Empire, uh, an improved uh, edition uh, of Byzantium. And uh, finally, uh, the Turkish, in the Turkish case, this is the, obviously the Turkish mm. history uh, thesis I already mentioned, which depicted the Turks as the forerunners of all the nations of Eurasia, uh, the creators of the major Asian civilizations of China, uh, India, Mesopotamia, Egypt, uh, Asia Minor. It also had a linguistic analog, the so-called Sun language theory, which defined Turkish, the Turkish language as the world's oldest uh, language. A somewhat milder variation of the thesis is the so-called Anatolianism, claiming Turkish autochthony in Anatolia, that is Asia Minor, whereby the Turks had provided the racial stock for the Aegean and Anatolian societies of the ancient era, which the Greeks later abrogated. So it was from such positions that Turkish historians approached Byzantium. Yeah, but this also, oh, sorry. Yes. Um, no. So there you have it. I mean, that's that's an interesting range of uh, of interpretations. And I should add that there are some common tropes 
to many of these and, and your book fleshes them out. I mean, we, we don't have the time to talk about all of them. Um, mm. a, as you pointed out, there is a racial element here. Many of these theories are really about racial continuity and mm. or purity, though it's often disguised under other words like culture and so forth. In the Greek case, for example, there was long uh, a kind of allergy to admitting Slavic presence you know, in, in yeah. the territories of the Greek-speaking, you know, the Greek Empire and so forth. Another trope that one notices is a, a kind of obsession with the moment of maximum imperial expansion on the part of each state. So Serbians focus on Dushan, Bulgarians focus on Simeon, mm. and, and so... Mm -hmm. And that moment of maximum perceived military power or expansion is taken as the kind of archetype, the normative, you know, uh, template for our history, like even today. The justification of our historical rights. Yes. Affirmation yes. of our historical rights. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And this, of course, leads to, I mean, it it, it is both a part of contemporary conflicts and fuels them. For example, you know, uh, about uh, Maced North Macedonia, for example, and, the, you know, the Bulgarian yeah. claims to that and now North Macedonian counters to that and, and so forth. Uh, so these are these are very much, you know, histories of the present as much as they're talking about uh, about Byzantium. I want to pick up on another theme that you mentioned here um, in, in connection with the Turkish tradition, which is that how they deny or tried to deny in the national historiography uh, you know, Byzantine influences on the you know early Tur Tur Turkish settlers and and the the Ottomans and or the Seljuks before them. So how have the other countries coped with this problem? I mean, in very general terms, um, their histories kind of run through Byzantium in some ways. Um, they're, or at least they're very strongly shaped by them culturally, certainly in terms of orthodoxy. So mm -hmm. how mm -hmm. do they find ways to assert their own cultural superiority while admitting to some degree, yeah, but there's also this kind of Byzantine template. So how do they cope with that problem? Mm. Uh, this also evolved over time, and it's, it forms an interesting part of the whole story. If we're talking of uh, of general techniques, uh, we can say that, on the whole, the positive appropriation of Byzantium was reserved for those of its achievements or imprints that could be effectively nationalized and made to serve a national mm -hmm. cause. Right. Uh, this was certainly true of Greece, which practically devoured, so to say, Byzantium as the medieval phase of its history. As for Bulgaria, Serbia, uh, and Romania, they either talked of stubborn resistance to Byzantine imperialism and of stubbornly pursued national independence, or stressed at the same time, or parallelly, the assimilative powers of their national cultures. Uh, after the Second World War, a shift of perspective took place uh, in these three countries, Bulgaria, Serbia, and Romania, from what Byzantium meant for their societies to what these societies meant for Byzantium and its heritage. Right. The major contribution attributed to Byzantium at that time was that of having 
uh, having unleashed either through rivalry or soft power, the proper creative forces of the medieval Balkan nationalities and of stirring them to generate cultural values of their own, which they then transmitted to, uh, to other peoples. And hence the prominence in the scholarly vocabulary of, uh, of the time after the Second World War of notions like uh, mutual influences, dialogue, uh, symbiosis, but also adaptation, transformation, and uh, assimilation of political and cultural transfers. In fact, uh, the most uh, uh, prominent medievalists and Byzantinists of the time, while admitting the powerful impact of Byzantium, devoted the best part of their work to demonstrate the originality and creativity involved in the respective national assimilation of the Byzantine paragon in conceptual opposition to notions like uh, importation, imitation, and emulation. Yet at the end of the day, whatever the admitted uh, influences, all these cultures are said to have uh, remained true to the essence of their proper traditions uh, so that the outcome invariably was a unique Greek, a unique Bulgarian, uh, Serbian, Romanian, or Turkish culture, or as it was more, more often claimed, civilization. Yeah, another trope that I noticed was, um, along the lines of what you were saying, claiming certain key figures as being sort of ethnically or racially your own people who are just appear in a Byzantine guise in the sources. Mm -hmm. um, th this is done very often for many emperors where you claim, no, this person yeah. is really secretly a fill in the blank or Cyril yes. and Methodius, right? Mm -hmm. Or whatever. Exactly. And exactly. so you can loop the Byzantine influence <laughs> back into something that came from you in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's that's very common, too. Um, yeah. Now, <laughs> one of the other interesting themes of your book, and I'm really glad that you did this. Um, because it, it would have been impossible to talk about these historiographies on their own, but it, it would have been um, it would have been missing a big part of the picture, which is that their views of Byzantium are also mediated through Western historiographical traditions that they're getting, and largely the kind of negative view of the Enlightenment, the sort of Montesquieu-Gibbon approach. Not, but not only that, and so they're having to not only cope with the Byzantine sources that they're dealing with, their own national narrative, but somehow they have to filter these through the Western models that they're getting. Um, so it creates this very complex, multi-layered situation. Could you give us just a couple of examples of how this works? And yeah, you know, pick the traditions, it, it doesn't matter because you're pretty consistent about dealing with this in the book in every chapter, but give us some examples here of, of how those different traditions all kind of filter each other. Uh, yes, uh, actually, I would pick up the Greek and the Turkish cases as particularly striking in, in this respect. That is, uh, that is making very graphic this kind of uh, interplay between Western and and uh, local national uh, interpretations. Uh, the influence of Western Enlightenment thought, as you as you mentioned, on the way Byzantium was was conceptualized in. Um, 
first originally in uh, late 18th to mid 19th century Greece, it can be abundantly uh, attested. Uh, for the Enlightenment uh, thinkers who regarded uh, with contempt the medieval age generally, uh, Byzantium became, as well, all know, the epitome of everything, the age of reason, disdain, despotism, uh, religious fanaticism, irrationalism, political corruption, whatnot. Uh, to a very large extent, the views of the leading Greek intellectuals in the first half of the 19th century were shaped by the Western fascination with the Greek antiquity, the political face of which was, uh, of course, Western Philhellenism hmm. on the one hand, and the related Western Enlightenment scorn uh, for, for Byzantium. And this can be very, very clearly attested in uh, uh, in the writings of uh, people like Adamantios Korais, for example, who is considered to be uh, the founder of uh, of uh, Greek national uh, ideology. These Greek uh, intellectuals, most of them liberal nationalists and republicanists and anti-clericalists, looked to classical Greece, not Byzantium, as the paragon for their country's modern development. For them, the medieval face uh, of Greek history was one of uh, humiliating subjugation by the Romans, of uh, orientalization and degradation of the, of the Greek nation. So both the myth of an eternal Greece and the Greek horror of being oriental yeah. were thus foreign importations, yet both had a momentous impact on the modern Greek self-understanding. And it is remarkable, again, that it was, again, uh, foreign views, in this case, above all, the English and German Romantic tradition, preoccupied as it was with the idea of historical continuity, that were responsible for introducing the portrayal of Byzantium as a bridge uniting ancient Greece to modern Greece and asserting the continuity of Greek history and Hellenism. Hellenism in the Hegelian sense of a Hellenic yeah. genius. As such, uh, these Western historians became cherished point of reference for Greek national historians. So the portrayal of Byzantium as a Greek empire was already forged by Western historians before it came to dominate uh, a Greek uh, national romantic historiography. The influence of, of, of the Western views on Turkish historiography of Byzantium is of different nature, and, and uh, it concerns, above all, the Byzantine contribution to the making of the Ottoman Empire. It is mainly uh, uh, in this respect that Turkish historiography perhaps more strongly felt uh, Western, uh, uh, the influences of Western, uh, Western views. It should be noted that in the first half of the uh, 20th century, uh, there existed a wide consensus in Western literature and European uh, uh, Orientalist scholarship in particular, which denied the capacity of the Turks, a nation, nomadic nation, to establish a durable and robust empire. The Ottoman Empire, it was held, owed its expanding power and creative force to an Islamic Byzantine amalgam, where the Christian element, that is the Greek and Balkan Slavic converts to Islam, was by far the more important uh, element 
uh, ensuring the continuity of Byzantine institutions and administrative practices under an Islamic, uh, an Islamic guise. In other words, whatever creative force there was in the uh, in the Ottomans or in the Ottomans uh, was attributed to a European element, while the Ottoman Empire appeared as a Muslim Roman Empire of, of mm. sorts. So it was in confrontation, in an attempt to defy this, this notion, uh, in, in confrontation with this opinion, that the Turkish, uh, so to say, negationist response came about, which denied any direct or formative Byzantine influence on the public institutions, uh, administrative practices, um, art or architecture of the Ottoman Empire. They all were said to derive fully from pre-Islamic or pre-Ottoman Muslim traditions and models. To this day, this view is the dominant one in uh, Turkish in Turkish historiography. So we can see that, uh, just to mention these two cases, in both the Greek and the Turkish case, Western views played a decisive role in the crystallization of the national historical narrative about Byzantium. Now, in the Bulgarian and Serbian cases, on the other hand, Russian scholarship was vital in asserting, especially in asserting uh, uh, the crucial role that the Slavs had played in regenerating and uh, perpetuating Byzantium. All in all, however, for most of the time, extra-regional Byzantine uh, research, Western and Russian, as we can see, was colored by political leanings. Yes, and they interact in strange ways. Um, and, and in some periods, it's Western uh, models that are dominant. Like in Greece, for example, as you mentioned, in the yeah. early 19th century, it's straight up this European Enlightenment model that we, you know, don't want to be associated with Byzantium. We want everyone to see us as descendants of the ancient Greeks. And then you, mm. you, you reach all mm. the way back. But in the mid 19th century, then you face another problem, which is like the Falmerayer challenge, where yes. you now have to yeah. distinguish yourself from Slavs. You're like, no, no, we're not, we're not Slavs. But in order to do that, you have to engage with Byzantium. Now you have to make that Greek so that you don't mm -hmm. be seen as emerging from a you know, quasi-Slavic template. And it's like, no, 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 Byzantium is, is entirely Greek. And yeah, there were a few Slavs, but we Hellenized them. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So these traditions kind of interact in these strange diachronic ways. Yeah. You're quite it right especially, about that. It is especially, especially interesting that the Falmeraya cases is interesting because similar to the Turkish, it was... Uh, the, 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 it provoked such a strong reaction on the part of the Greek historians that reverberated for decades and decades and decades on. Yeah. Uh, it is indeed interesting that it was precisely uh, uh, in the massive effort on the part of the Greek historians to uh, refute uh, uh, Farmeray's thesis that the Greek grand national narrative actually took took shape. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, a friend of mine, a correspondent, has called it a shotgun marriage, or mm. a shotgun wedding. So this is when, you know, you know the expression, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's like we didn't really want this thing, but we had to. We were forced to. So now we have to live together. Um, and I mean, my personal view is that this resulted in a fairly weak 
consensus. Um, a, 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 in all of my life, you know, that I've been talking about these issues, I have found that about half Greeks are not convinced by this narrative, um, which is a pretty high rate of failure. But anyway, whatever. So some of the traditions that you talk about are very favorable toward Byzantium, obviously the Greek one. Um, some are mostly favorable, some are unfavorable. Um, but can you talk about a case that seems to have a very mixed kind of love-hate relationship with Byzantium, like a national tradition that never quite made up its mind, how it's supposed to deal <laughs> with the elephant in the room or whatever we mm. want to call it? Yeah. Um, I think it is, it, is, it is hard to speak of chronologically neat alterations between love and hate. But among the Balkan heirs of uh, uh, Byzantium, perhaps Bulgaria best exemplifies this love-hate relationship in different periods. Uh, for example, the uh, hostile, the inimical treatment of Byzantium clearly prevailed uh, throughout the 19th and the, early, uh, uh, the, the first half of the 20th century. But after the Second World War, a shift took place to unraveling the two-way interactions and influences between the Bulgarians and the Slavs, more generally, uh, and Byzantium. Uh, most recently, there has been a tendency in Bulgarian historiography of presenting medieval Bulgaria as a Byzantium within Byzantium. Mm. Uh, but, I can, but I can also uh, observe a certain synchronic uh, love-hate relationship where uh, Byzantium can feature as the arch enemy of medieval Bulgaria in the political sphere, and at the same time, as a benefactor in the cultural sphere. Right. On the whole, uh, we should say that the effective, uh, 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 of the strongly effective attitude to Byzantium in the Bulgarian case uh, should not surprise because for seven centuries, the medieval Bulgarian, Bulgarian um, ethnos, statehood, and culture were being formed in constant uh, close interaction and frequent confrontation with the uh, with the Byzantine uh, Empire and how to deal with this overwhelming presence and civilizational entanglement with Byzantium has ever been a major challenge for the Bulgarian historians. Yeah, in many of your chapters, it appears that these discussions of Byzantium, especially as a political threat, um, you mentioned mm -hmm. the Bulgarian case here, are surrogate discussions of the um, you know Greek imperialism, especially in the 19th century and in the in the Balkan Wars and, and World War One and so forth. Now, just to explain what I mean, is that I mean Greek expansionism stopped a hundred years ago. In fact, to the year. Mm -hmm. um, but for the first century of its existence, you know, Greece was trying to, in its own mind, liberate as many Greeks or, or Orthodox whatever people from the Ottoman Empire and expanded fairly successfully uh, to the limits where it is today, starting out from a small, much smaller core after the, the revolution. But during this process of expansion, other emerging Balkan nation states were threatened and there were conflicts, there were Balkan wars and so forth. Um, and so this caught up discussions of Byzantium again. Um, I read about this um, 
I mean, the first real exposure I had to was Paul Stevenson's book on uh, the legacy of um, Basel II, where Mm. he talks about, right, so Basel II is kind of this model for uh, uh, Greek um, expansionism in the 100 years ago, uh, during the Balkan Wars. Um, Can you give some examples of how other historiographies kind of coped with sort of Byzantium as Greece, like how, how was that configured? Um, you mean in opposition to the Roman label or? No, uh, no, I, no, I don't think that oh, is seeing oh. um, Byzantium through the lens of modern oh. Greece. Oh, I see. I as see. a political well, danger. As a political danger, yes. Um, well, <laughs> I mean, uh, as it often happens, uh, the uh, uh, anxieties of the present provide the view uh, the view of the past. The uh, negative uh, attitude to Byzantium in uh, Bulgaria and Turkey, I already uh, I already uh, touched upon, mm. tallies with uh, the tense political relations, respectively between Bulgaria and in, in Greece all the way from the mid-19th to the mid-20th century, and between the Ottoman Empire and later Turkey and Greece uh, from early night, from the early 19th, uh, 19th century to this very day. Uh, I think and I claim in my, I argue in my, in my book that the appropriation or Hellenization of Byzantium by modern Greece uh, has much to do with with it, since it supposedly validated the projection of controversies unfolding in the present on a, on a distant past. Mm. The claim that Byzantine history was actually Greek history was adopted by many Bulgarian scholars uh, in confirmation of their attitude to Byzantium as a Greek power hostile to their nascent. Uh, nation state. The conflation between Byzantines and Greeks in the Bulgarian narrative was uh, instrumental in mobilizing the Bulgarians' resentment towards the contemporary Greeks by pointing to the uh, to the age-old confrontation between the two nations. All in all, uh, as you said, that uh, the, the Greek appropriation of the empire's cultural legacy and their insistence on the medieval roots of the Greek nationalist uh, program, the so-called Megali Idea or Great Idea, reinforced the Bulgarian and Turkish writers' rejection of all things Byzantine. Thus, (laughs) ironically, uh, Bulgaria, the most heavily Byzantinized uh, uh, Balkan country, and Turkey, the actual successor to the empire, ended up as the most fierce, the fiercest uh, detractors of uh, of Byzantium. So here uh, we, we can see how how uh, important all these contemporary concerns, contemporary confrontations uh, were for the way uh, Byzantium was uh, was approached, was studied, and represented. Now you mentioned earlier the Roman issue, and I'd like us to talk a little bit about that too. Now, mm. yeah, as you know, you know, I've taken a stand that. The, on the, the, this is a Roman state. Its <clears throat> subjects are, for the most part, Romans. By the way, this allows me to sidestep 
all of these issues. <laughs> like, I don't have to take a stand at all in any of these national controversies because they're, you know, and I don't do that instrumentally. It's because that's what I find in the sources. Um, so mm. all of these, for me, all of these national um, anxieties um, are, for the most part, moot. Um, but I found it fascinating how the different traditions coped with the Roman evidence that Byzantium left behind, mm -hmm. um, which seemed to be very sort of contradictory in, in many ways. I found the Romanian case particularly interesting. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that. Mm. Yeah, uh, as I already mentioned, by and large, uh, uh, briefly, the uh, uh, the way uh, the Bulgarian historiography instrumentalized the Greek uh, the Greek uh, uh, label, especially during its uh, romantic uh, phase. Yes, the Romanian uh, the Romanian case is an interesting one uh, indeed. Uh, the uh, Transylvanian or Latinist school, which dominated Romanian hist history writing. Uh, for a very long period of time, from the, from the late 18th century to the last quarter of the 19th century, so this school took up the task to demonstrate the Latin purity and continuity of uh, the Romanian race. For them, the transformation of the uh, Roman Empire into a Greek or Romaic state in the seventh century, when the newly established Bulgarian state separated the Latin speakers, that is the Romanians, uh, from the body of the eastern part of the empire and made the Greeks its only uh, its only masters. So this transformation meant for them Greek usurpation of the name Roman and of the role of custodians of the uh, uh, of the empire. The Greeks, these uh, Romanian historians held, had dubbed Latins, the people of the left bank of the Danube River and those of the West in order to pose as Romans, while in fact they were subjects and not blood descendants of the Romans, unlike the Romanians and the, and the Italians from whom they actually stole the empire by, uh, by deceit. Accordingly, uh, the Romanian Latinists called Byzantium an Eastern Empire, or simply the East, the kingdom of the Greeks uh, or the Romaic. For them, therefore, Byzantium was the result of a felony, a theft from the Romanians, who were the true heirs of the, uh, of the, Roman, of the Roman glory. Uh, a century later, uh, Nikolai Yorga, already mentioned his name, he was the most important Romanian historian in the first half of the 20th century, came up with a different reading of this issue. Jorge held that in neither political nor cultural sense was Byzantium a Greek empire, despite the dominance of the Greek language and the prestige of the, uh, of the Hellenic heritage. Uh, he argued that the Romans-speaking populations of southeastern Europe, who are traditionally counted by Romanian historiography as Romanians, mm -hmm. continued to nourish the creative power of the Roman element and the idea of the restitution of the single Roman uh, Empire. This is what, what uh, uh, Jorga argued. Uh, in this perspective, in Jorga's reading, the Romanians appeared as bearers and 
uh, bearers of the same imperial tradition as the Byzantines. Unlike the Bulgarians uh, and, uh, and the Serbs, they were uh, neither rivals nor imitators uh, of, uh, uh, of the Roman imperial idea. They were its embodiment and carriers along with the Byzantines. And this is what uh, uh, made the Romanians in this, in this view so apt to inherit and perpetuate the uh, Byzantine Roman imperial and cultural tradition after the political uh, political demise uh, of the uh, of the empire and it also licensed them to envision them uh, to envision themselves uh, as uh, destined in more uh, favorable future conditions to remake the latin empire uh, empire of the east yeah, I yeah. find fascinating the different ways in which these traditions try to cope with the um, Roman mm. problem. Um, it's it's almost a litmus test that tells you what they're trying to get at. Um, and there's so much variation from denying it, which is a standard Western approach too, uh, to kind of trying to massage it like the Greeks do, because they, they know about it. It's part of the modern Greek folklore that, you know, they were once Romi, Romei. They know this. They, they can't deny it as such, but they just try to convert one into the other. Well, it really means Greek, right? So it's like, okay, so we don't have to talk about it, but we're not going to deny it either. Um, and, and so on. There's a range of responses. <clears throat> I've said this before, but I wonder if uh, Turkish engagement with what we call Byzantium might actually be uh, smoothed a little bit or facilitated um, from its current, I mean, it, it's currently not, there, there are tensions in Turkey right now about, about Byzantium mm. for, for obvious you know, political reasons. Um, but if it's seen less as sort of Greek and more as Roman, that might make it less political or something. I hope that it might, it might be easier to deal with it that way. So it's not, you know, the culture of your neighbor who, with whom you have a difficult relationship. Mm. Anyway. Um, I, I'm, uh, this is obviously not a, an issue for me. I, I'm just going to keep work, working on, uh, you know, East Roman Empire itself. But I just find it fascinating as a as a way of tracking what all these traditions are trying to do. Mm -hmm. um, and and as I said earlier, let's not forget that 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 the West has perpetuated its its own enormous myths um uh, about Byzantium. it's not um innocent of, of of all of this so we're not just picking on balkan nationalities right whatever um anyway we're almost out of time there's a lot of uh, rich material in your book and i i hope um that um uh, uh, many of our uh, audience will go and read it um any final thoughts you want to leave us with mm. well um <laughs> um I would perhaps uh, round up our discussion uh, by uh, stressing once again the huge importance of the ever-shifting, ever-changing present and current concerns uh, of the respective countries and historiographies in molding the way Byzantium is studied, represented, uh, appropriated or disowned. Uh, changing geopolitical standing relations with neighbors uh, requisites of cultural and identity politics and so on, all these affected crucially uh, the representations of, uh, of Byzantium. I would surmise that this observation actually applies to Western views of Byzantium as well. Um, oh, yeah. one, of the, one of the fascinating findings of my research was 
the potency of Byzantium, or rather of its representations in producing alternative views of the past and the present and alternative self national self-narrations. Uh, to some extent, we can attribute it to the uh, polysemic connotations of the very term Byzantium. But uh, to me, more important uh, appears the fact that Byzantium still matters a lot in terms of the political and cultural issues that are uh, at stake for the Balkan societies. Yes, in fact, your work is not just academic in a narrow sense, but also political. I mean, it, it, it has to be um, in the sense that these contested histories are very much part of the politics of the present. Um, and if in America right now, like we're seeing this in real time, um, at the, you know, part of the core of political conflict has to do with what is taught in schools and how American history is taught in schools. And this is like at a level of presidential politics um, and also institutional um, you know, priorities, you know, who do you put in charge of educational institutions? What do they teach children about slavery and, you know, and, and so forth yeah. in the history yeah. of America? And in, you know, in the, in, in, in Southeastern Europe, these legacies are very much and always are, and your book shows this, part of the present discussion about who we are and what we're doing with each other in, in, this, in this corner of exactly. Europe here. As a matter of fact, it is precisely coming back to the very beginning of our discussion. Um, uh, this is precisely, I mean, precisely the social implications of history teaching, of uh, the study of history, is what really attracts me so uh, so uh, unwaveringly to this to this uh, to this field. And you you can discover new and new newly invented social implications of this. So even if we want to remain uh, more or less uh, academically objective, neutral, uh, as it as it were, uh, with uh, when dealing with the history of of uh, of historiography of history writing, we are really committing a very disturbing act. And and. Uh, uh, <laughs> We cannot avoid being political political in this. Yeah. Well, um, Diana, your book is very lucid, and um, I think it's a necessary and very welcome contribution. Um, so th thank you for taking the time to look into the history of our field in, in all of these countries. This is very difficult material to access. I should say that, too. Um, so not everybody has all the linguistic skills that you have. So <laughs> thank you for that. Thank and you. Uh, I look forward to your next book. Thank you very much, Anthony, again, for inviting me on and for the uh, opportunity to introduce uh, to a broader public a little known corpus of literature and little known conceptualizations of Byzantium originating from uh, from southeastern Europe. Uh, I look forward to your book on uh, thematizing the, uh, rather revisiting and interrogating Western scholarship on Byzantium in I terms am. of uh, its ideological, political, and uh, epistemological precepts and foundations. So oh. um, I also have something very much to look forward to. You think Balkan nationalists are crazy? <laughs> wait, until you, <laughs> wait until you see French Orientalists or you know Nazi racists. <laughs> theorists whoa yeah. all right all right diana thank you Take thank care. you very much thank you very much